Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Nicolay Wealth Management Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Anthony Wilhelms. We have Mike Steppe, a familiar face, and a new face, Eric Zurich, a senior strategist with Nicolay Wealth Management, joining us today. Guys, I can't wait to get started. There's all sorts of stuff going on in the world. Mike, will you kick us off with an update of what we've been seeing over the last few weeks? What we've seen is, first of all, treasury rates have gone up. So five-year treasury notes at the end of July were trading around 418. Now the yield on that this morning is 456. So over eight weeks, we've seen a 38 basis point increase. The reasons for that, a couple. First of all, Fed policy may boost overnight rates. So people thinking about that. The economy is a little stronger than what people thought it would be at this time of the year. Treasury and corporate supply has been higher. And inflation pressures, especially with energy prices going up, have been, have been a little more intense than people thought. So we've seen this shift up in rates. Equities have been weaker. S&P is down about 5.4% since the peak. And even after that pullback, though, the S&P 500 is trading at a 19.5 multiple of projected 2023 earnings. So we're pretty still at a pretty strong valuation level. Oil prices have shifted higher. That's probably been the biggest news in the market over the last six weeks. Uh, when you look back to the end of July, oil was trading about $80 a barrel. Now it's trading above $90 a barrel. And primarily because of Saudi cuts in production that have sort of boosted that level. But it's that that's everything has an energy component in terms of getting transported by by oil or so it's a big deal in the market. And then uh, last point that I would highlight is the dollar is strengthened. So since the middle of July, we're up from probably 5.7%. And again, it's U.S. strength in our economy relative to other economies and interest rate differentials. So you look at that this morning and the U.S. 10-year Treasury at about a 445, German 10-year at a 275. So you're seeing 170 basis point spread going into the U.S., so that's going to help the, the dollar in this kind of a world. So that's kind of the update that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Oh, that's great, Mike. Eric, I'll come to you in just a minute with a question about uh, gas and energy prices kind of related to what Mike was talking about. But one more thing with you, Mike, related to the uh, FOMC meeting and Powell and what's going on with uh, Fed outlook and policy. That's top of mind to everybody. So Powell, from my perspective, had sort of three takeaways at the press conference. First of all, he's keeping current policy on overnight rates. Overnight rates are trading around 5.33%, and that's staying there for now. The Fed's rate projections continue to show, this is the second point, that 25 basis points of tightening could still happen. Overnight rates might then shift from the 533 to a 560 range. Powell's careful to say that the Fed might raise rates if it's justified by the data or they could hold. The market this morning is pricing in sort of a 50-50 
probability of, of uh, 25 basis point rate increase before year end. So those things I think the market was anticipating. The surprise that sort of hit people was the Fed projections for next year. People had been pricing in 100 basis points of cuts next year. And when they looked at the numbers, they saw 50 basis points of cuts. So that's what the Fed is saying. It's always interesting to see how the market interprets that versus what the Fed said. So the Fed came out, said, yeah, we're thinking about 50 basis points. And this morning, the market's pricing in about 70 basis points of price cuts for next year. So that that's sort of the background on sort of what's happening there. Well, it's fun to have our um, hindsight ability when we think about the forecasts we were hearing from so many portfolio managers outside of Nikolay about extending durations on bond portfolios early in the year because it was a sure thing the Fed was going to cut rates by now. And now you talk about the revisions going forward into 2024. So it'll be uh, important to continue monitoring that. Eric, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to get the first question to you. Um, gasoline prices, things have been moving, energy-related products, uh, are they impacted by the inflation outlook and what's going on? Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, the The answer will be right down the middle, and I'll explain myself here. Uh, the answer is yes and no. Um, have these price increases on gasoline uh, impacted inflation? Okay, so the reason why I say yes is because of this idea of anchoring. Um, I think the more cyclical components of gasoline, energy-related products, price increases, uh, if sustained, cause expectations to increase. Right? You know, you're you see prices increasing at you know the the pump and you think everything else is increasing um so i, I think that makes cousins consumers feel that prices across the board are rising um you know in this case um energy price increases were far more severe a few years back um and i think unlikely to uh change the perspective of inflation going forward um i think the most important aspect that impacts the inflation outlook um in ours and likely the federal reserves as they've talked about is not goods inflation, but services. Uh, and, and the reason why I, I say that is because you can store services, but you can store goods. Uh, maybe not easily in some cases, but it's certainly possible. Um, the Federal Reserve uh, preferred inflation measurement, which is essentially all services, less housing, is details probably one of the more stickier inflation um, in the economy. And it's, it's currently trending in a, in a level of four to 5% uh, since 2021 which is way above the 2% level the Fed expects inflation to average over the cycle. So I think this is the true indicator we must focus on to understand um, what future monetary policy and its impacts on capital markets. I like it. I didn't think of the uh, anchoring and how people feeling that change in gas prices, which is so present, uh, can affect their maybe willingness to pay more on other things and just the assumption that other things are getting more expensive. Mike, I have a question that overlaps for both you and Eric related to, are you talking about dollar strength over the last, I think you said six weeks, but you can correct me there. Um, while we're also looking at persistently high inflation, if we're seeing a strong dollar and inflation domestically, does that suggest that inflation is even higher overseas and that maybe those countries are going to have an even tougher time leaving their interest rates as low as they are? It does put pressure on, on foreign economies and their and their currencies. 
So yes, there there is some pressure there. So now I have another question that you're welcome to sidestep, or because Eric's new, you could pass it on to him. Because I, I don't know the answer to this one very genuinely. I wonder when you talk about 170 basis point spread between, a, I think you said a 10-year treasury and a German boom. And then when we think about a strengthening U.S. dollar and inflation here, how is a country like Germany able to, especially on the short end, be able to maintain these interest rates that are so much lower than our domestic interest rates and not have inflation go crazy? Well, the, the big pressure that they have right now, now is that their economy is really weak. So that that that's what's uh, allowing it to happen. And they're they're in a, a recession in terms of the level, especially on their manufacturing and export oriented economy. So that's that's what allows it. That yeah. totally makes sense. I should have known you'd have the answer to it. It'd be <laughs> a demand driven thing domestically because of the health. And, and Eric, that'll come into the next question I have for you related to stocks in general, growth stocks, which ties into inflation and the health of the U.S. economy. Can you maybe take those comments from me, turn it into a question and give us something interesting out the other end? Yeah. Um, so I think this builds on what Mike was discussing. Um, I think the most relevant part of the dollar is, you know, essentially what its signal is on global growth. So, um, you know, what I always say is the dollar is a counter cyclical currency. So meaning it appreciates during global slowdowns, you know, trade, manufacturing, and appreciates during recoveries. Um, and this is counter to sort of the mini growth recovery we're seeing in the US, right? Um, we're seeing some you know, better data released on the, the Fed you know, underlined that um, this week. Uh, but currencies consider all aspects of expectations globally. So for example, you know, Mike mentioned rate. Um, and you know, also you could throw in trade differentials. Um, so, you know, global manufacturing PMI surveys. Um, so what manufacturing firms are saying about, you know, what they expect new orders to be going forward is more pessimistic um, than optimistic and simply trade continues to trend lower. Um, so the impact on emerging market equities to get to your you know, actual question, um, it's, it's generally more negative uh, based on those trends, um, given what the dollar is telling us, uh, slightly more negative on a global growth front. Um, this has been negative for relative emerging market um, equity performance. So as a reminder, uh, you know, despite a recent trend toward more technology, um, consumer discretionary communication, um, you know, stocks in emerging market basket, the underlying stocks are geared more cyclical. So exactly why trade is an indicator to follow. So until economic activity and trade improves, um, there seems seems like emerging market equities are likely to um, exhibit some headwinds. So now I have another question. I'll stay with you, Eric, and it might be more of a steppy question. That's where I intended to direct it. But now we're talking about international and I, I kind of have a question or curiosity related to why investors are still choosing to lend to countries like Germany or the EU in general. And I'm really pointing the finger at any country with lower interest rates than the U.S., if they are, we'll call it demand constrained, they don't have the demand for their products, whether it's exports or internally, and people are accepting a lower yield on those investments, and it's a currency that hasn't appreciated uh, relative to the dollar. So why are they able to maintain these lower interest rates and still have investors buy their bonds? 
I, I would say the, the way that they, they do that is they have a better long-term track record on inflation. Mm. And when you look at sort of the deficits that they've run versus the deficits that we've run, they look at that and say, from an inflation perspective, um, they they have been more disciplined. And so that allows them to get by funding themselves at a lower rate. I'll, I'll think of it as a vote of no confidence in the U.S. That is why the <laughs> race. Well, when, when, there's a, when there's a major concern in the world, you see everybody coming to the dollar. So uh, at the end of the day, that that's the that's the safe haven place for everybody in the world to come. But in the in when you look at inflation, we do have an inflation. You know, we we do have more inflation. So that's what's concerning people. So wait, are you indicating the U.S. might print more dollars in the next year? <laughs> they will. You see it in in the supply of treasuries that are getting issued, and uh, it's going up. What we used to think of as a large auction of treasury issues, uh, it's a lot larger today. So (laughs) Throw on double the uh, interest rate on them, and that uh, starts to really look large. We'll save that for another uh, topic. Maybe maybe we'll start out with Adam on that one. Throw him a grenade to start. He's back. Um, Eric, I'll come back to you. We talked about emerging market and international equities there. Would you take a second to maybe grab some of the things we talked about so far and think about it in the context of domestic value and growth, how we see things yeah. go forward? There's been a lot of dispersion of the two over really that feels like the last 18 months. Um, and give us some direction on that. Yeah, I think um, I think anytime I answer this question, um, it's always helpful to you know, give some context from the um, you know, economic environment because that's really what drives um, these two um, you know styles, factors, you know, ways of investing in 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 equity markets. Um, you know, we mentioned you know rates to stay higher for longer, um, which plays into equities not being the only game in town. You know, now we actually have fixed income alternatives to equities. I mean, that that's something unheard of for the past ten years, right? Um, you know, global slowing, as we mentioned. Um, but higher pro- productivity from AI um, supports potential or long-term growth um, of the global economy. So before this cycle, um, low growth, uh, low rate environment, um, effectively incentivize investors to place you know, a premium on a, a few companies um, that are actually generating earnings. And surprisingly, despite kind of the change in the economy, we're still seeing that theme play out. Um, you know, you, maybe you've heard the, the term the Magnificent Seven. Um, you know, that's still playing out. Um, which is sort of surprising uh, given this broad earnings growth um, in the market finally. And you know, Mike uh, touched on this earlier. Um, giving you the brief insight into this dynamic, um, you know, for uh, next year earnings expectations have actually been revised higher by 8%. So we're talking 2024 earnings. Um, equity investing always comes down to finding growth, not yet priced in the, in the market correctly. So August signified actually the first month since March 2022, in which the three-month moving average of the S&P 500 upward earnings estimate revisions as a total total revisions exceeded 50%. So, so many companies are actually um, you know, guiding higher um, for their earnings. And we've seen continuous momentum on the earnings revision front over the past six months um, you know, as a result. Um, so, the driver of earnings revisions has not only been influenced by one segment of the market, but it's certainly widespread 
Okay, so let me get back to yeah, actually answering the question. So what does this actually mean for value and growth? Um, well, a more widespread earnings environment as evidenced by higher interest rates in a real 10-year yield at 2% level, this is supporting value stocks. So why pay for the promise of future earnings growth when earnings could be captured now? Second, the valuation is becoming more important. There's no reason to overpay for a unit of earnings at this point of the market cycle. And then third, value is higher than market uh, dividend yield. So this also plays in the story of why pay for more earnings when dividends are available now? Um, so I think to summarize, it would seem that we are in an environment where invest investors will consider growth, so earnings growth, but it has to be at a reasonable price. So over, you know, over the next year, that, that should favor value. I like it. Well, I have one more question for you uh, related to labor. When we think of earnings revisions upward, and I, I followed the, direct, uh, the direction of your comments that it's a, an unusually high amount of companies revising upward. I like that. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of a time where some of the issues you have right now, with strike on uh, UAW and labor being one of the primary drivers of inflation that the Fed has been watching. And if we're seeing companies all revising upward on earnings, sure feels like labor in a general sense is going to push those ways, take a portion of that to push wages higher. How do you see that playing out? And not necessarily just the UAW strike, but more broadly labor and the Fed's ability to not increase rates a lot more if wages keep going up. Yeah, I think from the margin standpoint, that's certainly, uh, you know, a risk. Um, you know, like you said, it's not just, you know, the, you know, strikes. Um, it's, it's interest rates too. So I, I think anytime you see rates move at this level, um, it certainly pressures, uh, margins. And, you know, if they're, if they're finding ways to, uh, make more money, I think, I think there's certainly a reason to believe that labor will look out and say, Hey, well, let's get more portion of that, of those earnings. And, uh, it's certainly a risk to the market going forward. Good. I appreciate the comments. Mike, go ahead. I think the other thing on this is when you see wages going up, that's a pressure on inflation. And so the Fed can have a goal of we'd really like to see inflation get back to two. But it may be more realistic to think that that inflation is going to settle out in the two and a half sort of range um, because you've got wages and you've got this deglobalization that's going on where people want to are worried about their supply chains, want to make it more local, even if that costs more. And so you may have a period where as much as the Fed wants to see uh, inflation get back to 2%, it may not get there. That's a great point. It's going to be interesting going forward. Mike, high yield bonds. We have generally liked high yield bonds as a firm for a long time. Um, I see you shake your fist in the air like, yeah, we do. <laughs> you gotcha. I love the story related to them, the segments that they uh, touch, the place they are in the capital structure. Uh, where do you see things for the rest of 23 and 24 in that segment? Question, one I'd love to talk about. Um, the overall bond market has been weak in 2023. When you think about it in terms of fixed income, the aggregate bond index is slightly negative so far year to date. Investment grade corporate bonds are slightly positive because they've done okay in terms of the spread relationships there. But high yield bonds have done really well. So we're up over 5% year to date. And 
Generally speaking, high-yield bonds are less sensitive to rate movements than treasuries. So you're going to have this sort of period where high-yield does well. We continue to emphasize the better quality high-yield issues. So we're trying to minimize in our portfolio holdings the triple C-rated bonds. And again, as you've got an economy that is slowing, maybe we'll go into a recession, maybe not, but we're going to likely slow. It feel like um, we want to. We, we're, we're not giving up that much in yield to have less exposure to those triple C credits. So we really like the the high yield, but we're focusing more on the higher end of that scale than the lower end. Well, another question that is not a high yield bond, but it feels like it to a lot of consumers when they look at mortgage rates now. They see us seven and a half percent on a thirty-year mortgage. It feels like, what am I a junk bond? So am I a high yield bond <laughs> at these types of rates? How do mortgage-backed securities fit into the mix? I'm talking on the investor side, not on the uh, the borrower side. Me side, mortgage rates are at a twenty-two year high. So uh, with rates well above seven percent, the risk as an investor in mortgages is that if rates fall, the homeowner can refinance and the investor gets paid back at par. So as an as an investor, you really got to get paid for that risk that you're taking because if you buy a treasury, you get to keep it when rates go down. And that's where you get that that's where you generate positive returns on that. So you've got this worry that are you getting paid appropriately for a, a potential rate decrease in the future? In addition, with mortgage backs, the Fed may boost its sales of those, and that could could widen out the supply. I'm as a as a person that watches that mortgage back market really closely. I'm always looking for older mortgage back issues that are being sold by either banks or the Fed, and looking at sort of how those are being priced. If you can buy old mortgages that are at were issued at 2% coupons or 3% coupons, and you look to buy those in the secondary market. Right now, the prepayments on those have been unusually high, um, and so you've got a situation where the market is still pricing in pretty significant prepayments, which could slow. So that hasn't made the, the pricing at the moment just doesn't look very attractive on those. So we're not we're not as active in the mortgage market uh, in portfolios as we, we could be if the pricing got better. But at the moment, not not particularly. Well, that's so. it's really interesting to think about the differences between the bond and the equity markets about equities are so we'll say supply constrained. There's only so many stocks out there. Where bonds, the universe is so large, where there's all the issuers, plus all the different maturities, and then the different tranches and different types. And so the type of due diligence that you and your team does, Mike, is so, so significant and so important on the fixed income side, not to take away from the equity research, but that's the one that gets so much of the headlines. Don't worry, Eric, we still like your equity research side. Um, well, well, I want to echo one thing that Mike said, and I yeah. think it's uh, it's very important. And from the equity side, um, you know, Looking at you know kind of the higher credit for high yield, we, we're doing the same thing for you know what we're how we're looking at equity markets. Um, you know, from a capitalization standpoint, um, you know, looking at the higher credit, which means larger cap stocks. And the reason why we're doing that, is, you know, 
focusing more on large cap stocks is because you know they're you know the size matters, the geographic diversification, the business diversification, the, all those things matter. Um, you know, mm-hmm. as we kind of move through the cycle. That's a great point. It's uh, it's fun to hear the the process and see how how it's done behind the scenes. Well, guys, this is awesome. Somehow this time flew by. It's uh, it's great to have you, Eric. I'll look forward to you joining us again. Uh, first, I'll turn it over to Mike for some parting thoughts, and then over to you, Eric, for your parting thoughts. Mike, I'm always fascinated by sort of what the consumer is doing, and there's a lot of people right now that are focused on the consumer savings rate and what that looks like, and it's fascinating to me because I think the consumer is really dynamic, and they they their behavior changes. For example, in the mortgage-backed world that I was just talking about, we're seeing uh, consumers pay down their mortgages. And I think that is a way, it's an, it's an alternative way of savings for them. They look at this and say, hey, if I, if I have this cash, instead of putting it in a savings account, I'm going to pay down my mortgage. And even though that mortgage is at 3%, um what you know that that's an all that's an attractive thing for me and so you're seeing them do that and it doesn't show up in our traditional statistics so i think you you've got to watch what the consumer is doing these days because that that behavior is changing so rapidly i love it eric parting thoughts from you oh from an outlook standpoint i'll i'll leave that with with mike but i will say everyone have a uh, a great last day of summer um, this may, you know, recording this on the 22nd of September. So I believe today's the last day of summer. Um, this may be a quite a take here, but fall is by and far my favorite season. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, nothing better than having a nice fleece or a hoodie and having the nice warm days and, and, uh, having the, the cool nights up here in Wisconsin. I love it. All right. Thanks gentlemen. We'll talk again soon. <laughs>